Welcome to the Rumpus Room. Hey everybody, how's it going out there? It's the boys from the Midwest back kicking it here in the Rumpus Room, and let's hit them with the takeaway message of the day. So there are, um, there's been some effort around being uh, too nice of a guy and being too much of a people pleaser, and I think I've been trying to advocate for more of what I want to do instead of trying to keep the water smooth. And so there's a lot of different ways to think about trying to really just advocate for what you want. And I, I do think there's a lot of kind of pressure that we've been working on, especially as, you know, being raised as a male. Um, there's a few factors that drive this, but one of the things that I've noticed is when you do things for the sake of getting something in return. So like doing this, a very small example is like just telling your wife that you love you with the expectation. She'll say, I love you back. Mm -hmm. So I think the best way that I've been trying to deal with it is to really just express my opinion and not be invested in what the other the other side thinks as much because that i think is a a challenge and it creates i think a little bit of expectation from others and it's really hard to expect things from other people mm -hmm. uh you mentioned what it was called some some sort of contract yeah so it's called a covert contract so it's a contract that nobody knows is there, <laughs> just you and you are, it's really more of a subconscious thing. So, you know, it's kind of these, these like, you know, oh, I'm going to go do the dishes and do all the laundry and do all this stuff so I can get something from you in return. But by you doing all of that stuff, you're not communicating that you need something in return. So it just creates a lot of resentment and frustration. And what was really interesting is it talked about, and this is a book and it's from a psychologist and he was talking about being raised as a young boy or even just a young girl as a baby, you're going to not have your needs be met. So you're going to be crying and somebody won't pick you up. So what his theory is, is that you start to create this identity where, you know, everything when you're a little boy or little girl revolves around you. And that, you know, so you've kind of an egocentric, so you believe that you cause everything. So when you something happens that you, you know, don't get your needs met, you feel like you caused that cell, caused that. So there's a lot of... Um, making up that you have to do in the early part of your life. You know, you think you should do things for acceptance. Like you think you should make your parents happy so that they'll love you. Or, you know, there's a lot of different ways that you try to gain love. So I think it's, you know, I think we've talked a lot about being kind of like the nice guy. It's sometimes not all that it seems. <laughs> there's a lot more there. Sure, I can certainly attest to the young child who thinks of the 
all of the world, you know, revolving around that one worldview. For example, he really likes to come into my office and just hang out. And um, I have to do work or whatever. And then I pull him away from um, my, my workstation and he cries and he like doesn't understand that his will doesn't always necessarily get to be fulfilled per se. Yep. Um, did they talk at all about how you overcome that throughout the process of raising a child? Yes, they do. And the big thing is having strong male leadership and, you know, having them do projects with you and having them come hang out with you at work or, you know, you with your buddies, you know, so getting them around you know, like strong male grandparents or, you know, like are a really good male role models is a way that they learn how to be a strong male and see them in action. And that's the best way for them to have a good role model to say, oh, that is how I behave. You know, and I go back and I think about our grandpa who told everybody what was on his mind, you know, and he, he said what he believed and he accepted if somebody did, you know, the way people were. And it's just having um, your children surrounded by those types of experiences to kind of combat some of the frustration. Because, you know, like, you know, we've we've experienced this with your kids. You can't satisfy all their needs all of the time. So there will be this type of, you know, letdown and view. So that's one way of doing it. Um, yeah, that's uh, all the research suggests. Uh, you know, two parents are the strongest indicator of a child a child's future success or happiness. So, um, strong male role models are obviously important, and uh, equally, I can imagine strong female uh, role models are um, valuable for females. Um, it does call into, I mean, it's obviously we talk a lot about gender and it's just kind of fascinating that this de gender conversation is such a huge deal right now. Uh, it'll be interesting to see kind of how, how this all shakes out. Uh, I don't necessarily want to comment on, on that whole thing right now. You I want to just, take that one on? <laughs> no, I don't. I'm not willing to at this point. Um, we'll let everybody there. else argue that one or talk about that one yeah, exactly we'll let jordan peterson and the other zealots for free speech um continue to to fight their way through whatever um they're experiencing and it's not an easy it's not an easy thing um and sometimes i i like you know uh wonder how i should be raising my child within that environment and then i just come back to like you know what treat him like a boy and like i love him and you know whatever everything else will come out in the wash and the education system and you know whatever we'll we'll, we'll approach all of that as it comes and just like not make it weird like one thing that i think um and for those of you who don't i don't know like i don't think this is weird but um i typically end up taking a bath with uh my son to put him to sleep it's like I'm working the entire day and that's usually kind of a point at which like, all right, I'm starting to help out. I take him and we go and have a bath and he's too small to like 
just leave in the tub. You can't, you know, leave a baby unsupervised in the tub. So your options are sitting on the outside, right? Um, or you're in the water with them. And, and so, you know, I opt to clean myself. Why not kill two birds with one stone? Right. Like, <laughs> yep. Um, and then we go to bed, uh, and there's, there's a lot of, shall we say, self-exploration happening, mm. Mm. Uh, of, uh, figuring out about how different parts work. Uh, uh yep. <laughs> and certain parts, um, you know, he has that the other gender doesn't. And so mm -hmm. sometimes he grabs, he grabs those parts and is experimenting with the fact that, oh, you know, wow, this is part of my body, whatever. Like, and I recall us having this conversation with our other friends who have dads and one guy's response was to like bat his son's hand away and be like, don't grab your dick. Hmm. <laughs> <You know? laughs> And I, I opt a different approach. <laughs> I do too. <laughs> I don't think that's, you know, and it's just like, if, if we look at every time your parent tells you to not do something, that's the first thing you kind of want to do. Exactly. So that's a tough, tough road to start on. And I think it's kind of a, sometimes a reaction, you know, you don't really know what to do or, not, or what to say as well. It is a hard thing because he hardly understands language, right? So, like, mm -hmm. he's not going to understand a, a logical argument. Um, so, no. I, I opt to just not emotionally charge the situation whatsoever. And, you know, I try not to, I, I, I don't say anything at all. Like, if he is grabbing himself, that's not a big deal. And you know what? To be honest, like there was a time where he first started to be like, oh my gosh, what is this thing? And it was all the time. And at that point, I never really paid, I, again, tried not to emotionally charge the situation and he doesn't do it as much. Like he's not, it's not like every time the diaper comes off, his hands are going down there and he's, you know, yeah. doing whatever. But um, it's now it's, you know, it's just not a thing. And um, I, I thought that, uh, we have we have such a big influence on their perceptions of right and wrong and it's just such a it's a it's a constant piece of awareness because now he's really picking up on everything that i do and um, so i'm uh, i'm 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 paying more attention that's for sure yeah you're impressionable and you know kind of going back to the the and i don't want to i don't want to stick my foot in my mouth with the gender thing, but I do think, you know, you have the ability to make those decisions for how you raise your children. You know, I have the ability and everybody has that ability as to how they want to, you know, make these decisions. And it's, it's very complicated and moving forward. I think it's going to be a constant assessment. And just like you talked about with the handling of, of one's private parts is, uh, you know, it's a new experience for them. So it's just uh, something for them to explore. And I think, you know, some people handle it differently. And it's, you know, it's fun. It's interesting to watch how you react and then how they react to your reaction. Because mm -hmm. they are paying attention to everything you say, do, all your mannerisms. You know, I don't, I don't think I told the story last time we were on, but I was, we were putting our son down and he was extremely tired. It was 
it was around Mother's Day, so we were seeing people, and it was late, you know, a little bit past his bedtime. Bath got too exciting. You know, he was pretty charged up, so he was crying a lot. I started making noise with my mouth, and, you know, just like random noises, like... And he started laughing hysterically, just hysterically laughing. And that wasn't my intent, but he started laughing. So, of course, then I start laughing. So then we're both laughing. And, you know, my, my wife is like, well, he needs to get to bed. And I'm like, well, I know. I just I can't help myself because <laughs> I always try to change his state, you know, to go from like, all right, he's in a state of frustration, exhaustion, how do I kind of snap him out of it? So that was one experience. It was interesting to watch how he reacted. He actually settled down and went went to sleep after that. Um, it didn't work the second time, so as as simple as that. But yeah, they, they do react to the situations and they are paying attention to what you're doing, how you're leading them. So it's been a kind of a fascinating learning experience. Totally. Uh, and you, that's a perfect example of a, of a classic redirect, if you will, um, which is what I try to do if I feel like there's been extended exploration. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. One of the things I will say I've learned is watching our older cousins with a constant redirect. You know, they'll come up to them when they're talking, you know, we're in a conversation. And as somebody who doesn't have older kids, you know, you're kind of like, oh my gosh, what are you going to do in this situation? And they calmly just redirect and the kids run off and you're like, wow, that was really smooth. You know, and not having kids, you're thinking about what to say, what to do. And it was just so simple. So it's just those, that redirect is a skill. I think we're still trying to learn. Sure. And to teeter on the line of cancellation here, um, I think that in terms of, you know, our approach as a father, um, and you know, how we address those things like self-exploration or, you know, whatever sort of sexual kind of, or identity things are going on, they have an impact on the child. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, uh, I'll, I'll go to this, um, hopefully safe haven, uh, of, of James Allen. <laughs> and, and, uh, I don't know if you have read any James Allen. Not lately. I think I used, I've read a few things, but not anything lately that I can remember. Yeah. Um, I just picked up some of, some of his literature again, and, um, he has a remarkable, um, what I would call radical self-responsibility, hmm. um, perspective on the world and so he's basically like if you're poor it's because there are certain circumstances maybe you had in a past life and it's odd because this guy is talking about like essentially buddhist ideals and karma but he does it from the lens of christianity hmm. um, and he's talking about like well it's maybe because you in a previous life or in a previous time had a bunch of money and you you subscribed yourself to gluttony and so now you're being punished because you have to learn how to appreciate things or whatever and he basically says like anything that is wrong in your life you are the cause of <laughs> you have control over it or you've you're the cause either in this life or previous life is what he's saying basically it's it's mm -hmm. both it's like 
it's like unequivocal responsibility for whatever has occurred or is occurring to you in your life, either from things you've done in this life or before. And um, then he talks about kind of the pure mind and a lot of it actually does then turn around to be like trying to be in the image of man and the kingdom of God is within or the kingdom of heaven is within. And like men can reach these states of purified souls if we um, go through these different steps. And it's, it's just refreshing um, for me to hear. And he, he starts in the thought plane. He's like, if you have unpure thoughts, they will spiral and they will become unpure actions, which will lead to unpure consequences. And you will continue to live in this cycle of whatever. And so he advocates for, um, he advocates for, you know, focusing on meditation and prayer and whatever. And I, it's instances like that when I'm looking at my, you know, my child does something that I think is wrong. Uh, and there's a lot of instances where I'm looking at, or, or anyone else really, but it's just easy when you're looking at your kid because you're feeling, you feel like somewhat responsible for their behavior because in whatever way, you know, you're a huge you're responsible for some of the, yeah, for, yes. for things. Yep. Parts of their lives. Mm-hmm. And, um, I always try to, it's been fun to read these reminders about how like, you know, I'm responsible for my actions and my contribution to this equation. So instead of like fault finding in him or in other people, um, James Allen is basically like always advocating for fault finding in yourself, which is a extraordinarily relentless and exhausting (laughs) idea. Oh my gosh. It is. But it's also in my opinion, kind of like the, and this has been the narrative of sages and prophets since all time in terms of Gandhi, like, you know, the challenge of humans is not in their ability to change the world as it's in their ability to change themselves. You know, it's, that's the, the radical you know, self like responsibility for self. And, um, when I look at the general lexicon of the way that the world works today, it, it appears that uh, that message is not, shall we say, um, <laughs> not front and center, not, not, not so salient these days. No, you know, and what I've figured out just by basic trial and error is if I make improvements personally, you know, and I become more comfortable, then I do see that manifest in other areas of my life and sometimes it takes a little longer for it to do that but if i fall back um i've noticed that there's been more opportunities given to me if i work on myself personally and that's not just like self-development but it's a lot of other things so you know i'm kind of constantly experimenting with what that means and trying to just get better because it is a it is a grind and I do think it is a healthy way and I think the way you and I have been raised which is to look at what can you improve you know what do you contribute and what can you improve about yourself which at times sometimes it's a it can be a little too self-critical but if you can put a positive spin on it with the agency and the confidence in yourself I think 
it is a healthy way to approach the world. Because the most difficult thing is trying to control other people. Mm-hmm. It's tough. That's kind of the big message in that one book that talks about being more of a people pleaser or a a nice guy is uh, the the constant what what you don't expect from a nice guy is or what like when you think of the concept they're actually sometimes more selfish than people that are just communicating directly because they are too trying to get something out of you you know and i've noticed that tendency sometimes in myself and it's like oh man you know you gotta try to there's a lot of control you know we as humans are complicated with our desire to control you know things people ourselves it's just kind of a balance and i think meditation and reflection is a good thing to to think about so that's a good quote from james allen yeah, there, there's, um, uh, I can't recall exactly what sort of parable, but um, a, a similar statement like, would you rather do business with somebody who you know is trying to screw you over and you're just like aware of it? Or would you rather do business with somebody who tells you that they're not trying to screw you over when absolutely you know that they are? <laughs> like, I would much rather do business with somebody who I'd, who I know former. is forward about. Yeah, exactly. Like, this is what I want. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Versus, you know, sh- shall we say shady sort of games or whatever to to obfuscate their, their intentions or whatever. Like, I don't know. And that's just my negotiating style. And I realize that you have to have multiple tools in your quiver in order to um, deploy those strategies appropriately. But um, one thing I've I- realized this is just like a small trick and I'm still assessing this hypothesis, but there's one per a couple people that I've known that have said like, I'm a nice guy a lot, you know, and they say like, I'm just a nice guy. I'm trying to help people out. Be very wary of those people. <laughs> Think twice. If somebody calls himself a nice guy, then um, I've noticed that's a red flag for some issues. Pretty dead giveaway there. Yep. Yep. And I've had, I've been duped by it more than once. So hopefully this, this next time I won't, I'll be aware of it. (laughs) Yeah. No kidding. Um, so a lot of people are on the move these days, um, including the NASDAQ. (laughs) (laughs) Um, They're going south. (laughs) (laughs) They're, they're searching for, uh, they're searching for the bottom here. They want to go for heat. <laughs> We're just they, trying to raise the heat. They're trying to go towards that sea level, you know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Whether it's people moving from the Midwest to the South for a variety of reasons, or it's your stock portfolio exploring the bottom of the ocean. <laughs> I think we're in a tough time. So, what is your perspective on? the way the market is moving. I mean, do you see that like this is going to continue to drop or what's your perspective on it? Cause we got like crypto people are just losing millions and billions as the days go. Yeah. You know, they're losing millions and billions in perceived wealth. That's all yeah. it is though. Like it wasn't actual dollars. The, the way that the crypto 
market works is that the price is propped up and is directly related to how much investment there is in it. Mm -hmm. So, um, for example, there's 21 million Bitcoins or whatever. Um, there's probably some intrinsic representation of cash value that they have. But then when you throw a bunch of investors at the problem and then people are buying into the price in order to sustain the price you have to continue to have that level of investment back in the currency so what happens is if you have a fall off a decrease of investors investing in the asset it goes down and then people start to sell and so it's a super volatile asset which is right now in free fall because people are not investing in it and people are divesting um it could be a really tremendous time to invest in crypto um, at some point when you know whatever your whatever your tolerance for risk is, but um, I don't know where that bottom is, and nobody does. Um, and it's a it's a so there's a bunch of perceived value that has been created, but the the equity prices have been far inflated by the fact that there's been like so much cash in the system. Yeah. And so now cash is slowing down and people are like, oh, the gravy train is over. We have to get out of equities. So now people, a bunch of people are getting out of them and there's this precipitous fall. Um, so I'm not sure if it's going to be full blown recession or just significant decrease in equities um, and crypto. But um, we'll see. You know, um, everybody's known this is coming for a long time, um, or at least, you know, the people on the front lines, like, or the people uh, on the fringes who have the wide, you know, the, the grants interest rate reserve, for example, these guys have been talking about it for a year. Yeah, one year, yeah. more, maybe more. And so, I don't know, that that's my perspective. Do you have an opinion on it? No, I think... You know, there's the common answer of how much, what is it, $3 trillion that the U.S. government has essentially stimulated sure. in terms of growth. So what is the correction? And there's a couple of factors of the availability of jobs. You know, there's a lot of people that are spending a lot of money, and I think that you know, kind of predates people stopping spending money, you know, and I think that when the interest rate is so low, people are just willing to kind of invest more money, do more things. I know in the startup world, there's less deals that are going down. So that means less investment, less jobs that will be created in the short term. That also means that there will be less startups that are <laughs> valued at crazy valuations i think mm -hmm. so there's less activity so how much of that is healthy and i think this is really where understanding the market dynamics and and hopefully this is a healthy correction or a healthy way of understanding what truly is the value that's out there because that's really all market's trying to do is find out how much is this thing worth mm -hmm. and really that's how much are people going to pay for it you know we can we can say perceived value and i think if you listen to somebody like Warren Buffett, they're very big into revenue, you know, 
consistent growth, consistent revenue. Whereas some of the newer businesses, excuse me, are really focused on how much can this grow? You know, like Tesla is uh, valued a lot higher than somebody like a Ford or a GM, even though Ford and GM's revenue is much higher. So it's always an interesting thing to review and to look at as what's that going to be? And I think people are talking about housing prices and whether that's going to increase or decrease. I think that's a little bit more a function of what's the supply and the demand. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think after hearing all these people that want to move, uh, I do think there's still the appetite for, you know, living in a house and the pandemic. I think that is kind of a shift that I think will be a little bit more long-term is what space you live in. So instead of people going in and spending a, you know most of their day at work, and then their awake time, they'd spend a lot less at home. I think we're all spending a lot more time at our homes. Like I want a bigger house or one that's more functional or, you know, whatever it is. So I think that is a natural reaction to like the COVID COVID change and the work from home rules and all of the big changes that, that has gone on. Do you have examples of people who are talking about particular plans? Uh, yeah, so there's a people that are around, like some family members are in, I would say, like semi-serious consideration of a move south. And so they're looking at different areas. I think they have like one area specific. You know what? I, I'm not sure if that's the function of just the frustration of the, a really shitty winter. <laughs> it's been a mm-hmm. shitty winter. Or it is truly like, this is something we want to do for the family and we want to make a change. But there has been other people that we, you know, we had this conversation in the past week and they have friends that are like, I'm going to Florida. I don't care if the job lets me move or not. I'm just getting out of here. So. Wow. Yeah. We'll see. Um, uh, The... I don't know if we will be ones to live through and see the water crisis occur, but um, it's coming. Uh, <laughs> sea levels, you know, uh, a, and so I don't know. The Midwest is a particularly insulated part of the country from a lot of some of that stuff. So it'll be, I, I don't know if like we will, it'd be interesting to see if we live long enough to see any sort of catastrophic shift in the climate. But um, given the way things are going, I don't think that it's unrealistic to, to, to assume that within our lifetime or perhaps the next generation's lifetime, we would have some relatively cataclysmic um, changes in uh, the way that the climate functions. And I don't know what that means per se, but um, so we'll see. Yeah. No. And I think, you know, we were in the basement a couple nights ago with the tornado warning. So that's always exciting to kind of understand how much power the weather can have over you and your daily life. These are some pretty powerful events and 70 mile an hour wind is pretty serious. So yeah, I think that uh, that's, that's going to be something we, it's a lesson that we may have to learn first. (laughs) 
but we'll see. Yeah, there's something so much more in tune with um, people who, in that same storm, uh, I typically have quite a routine in terms of doing my evening activities, putting our kid to bed, getting back on the computer, getting some work time in, whatever. And that storm rolled through and it was a sobering experience because I was like, okay, tornado warning, whatever. Um, you know, when safety's on the line, it's amazing how little else really matters. Yeah. And now that I've got a little one, I think of storms way differently. You know, before I was like, ah, we'll be fine. You know, whatever. We'll just, we don't need to go downstairs. But now it's like, crap, is he close to the window? You know, what if something, you know, we got a tree over there. You know, there's just a lot more things that go into your head. <laughs> when you're taking care of somebody else, the storms are a lot different. Sure. Yeah. We also had a bad storm, like a tornado hit down, I don't know, maybe a, two miles from here, a mile, like heavy, heavy 100 mile an hour winds blew blew through tons of trees down, you know, on top of houses. So that I think still is lingering in our, in our mindset when these storms, and the problem is the County that we're in rips that tornado siren way too often. <laughs> we, we had the tornado siren and it didn't even have, we didn't have rain and there was no tornado down. I do think it is <clears throat> because it's, we have one siren for the entire county. So little boy little, who cried wolf. Exactly. Oh. Yeah, the uh, text alerts are kind of something else that we, you know, um, in terms of that capability. Yeah. Um, I think about that text alert system. Like, let's just say, for example, a missile, a missile was launched. I bet they would use it. Don't you? Yep. Be like, hey incoming missile or do you think they would just shoot it out of the sky and then be like crisis averted it was an unidentified flying object i don't know uh it depends on the i think they may hold off on the text until i don't know maybe until it's coming down and they they can't hit it yeah ignorance is bliss because you know they're going to be shooting at that thing with everything they got oh man i know (laughs) but uh we got a whole Whole industry around that one event totally uh that's why cuban missile crisis was such a big deal because like never before were the nukes so close so to speak. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah it sounds like there's some flex going on between how fast these things can really go now yes i saw that as well uh the hypersonic missile yeah is hypersonic that's the new term it's the new term i believe it was raytheon Okay. Um, so was, is that is that is that after is that faster than sonic or is hypersonic those met those terms don't mean anything. Um or they're supersonic. Wasn't supersonic the last one? Oh, I have no idea. Um I know the supersonic the hedgehog, but I'm not sure Exactly. My first was... went to uh, a hyper car. I was like, I don't know. They use it for marketing purposes elsewhere. It could just be like 5% faster. And they're like hypersonic missile. I have no idea. I didn't look at the specs, but like they, uh, they do a good job of um, keeping the world on their toes. It's fascinating when you think about like marketing of military technology, because there is so much out there. If you want to go look at what the United States military has, 
every once in a while, a YouTube video will pop up that I'll look at like the latest technology that's going on. And it is just mind boggling. So what, I mean, I know some of the stuff you're, you don't like, we won't even know until a couple of years later, you know, cause the technologies, they don't want anybody to know what, what is kind of something that you've learned? Cause I'm pretty oblivious to all this stuff. Um, the F-35 fighter pilot fighter jet is pretty remarkable in the sense that you have a supersonic jet, which can hover hmm. and do vertical takeoff. Um, and so it's, it's maneuverability because of the fact that the propulsion system can maneuver is just like pretty, that's insane. Otherworldly. And I'm, pretty sure that there are there are certain military airplanes that we or there's there's a certain classification of military stuff that we don't export and then it just tells you that like oh that's the most badass stuff because yeah. nobody else can get it not even our allies so um there's um the one of the more interesting things is probably the railgun for me at least the railgun is a electronic um missile launch system that can shoot like projectiles um exceeding distances uh and i i, I wouldn't even be able to put um a number on it because I, I wouldn't do it justice but um that's pretty fascinating um the military the nuclear subs are interesting in terms of i i met a guy at a bar once he was on a nuclear sub and i was like hey what what do you guys what what's the purpose of a nuclear sub he said well we go down and then we don't come up for nine months and only two people on the boat know where we are and i'm just like well what are you doing and he said just waiting to push the button hmm. and it's remarkable that so much investment is is in that deterrent force um and it's 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 kind of interesting to think about Ukraine and and what Russia is spending. And according to the news media, which I I, I don't think we should put essentially any stock into it whatsoever, um, it would seem that the inventory of the Russians is deteriorating. Um, hmm. but I again, this is from check your sources. This is from the most biased. I mean, the American news media is on par, in my opinion, with like whatever or the mainstream media at least is on par with like, it, it may not be as bad as say the Chinese or the Russian state media, which literally is just ran by the government. Um, but these, these places might as well be. Um, well, the one thing that our media has is the, we talk about these covert contracts. Um, the, the idea that it may not be run by the state is could is that more dangerous or not yeah (laughs) yeah is that truly more dangerous you know because then the population thinks well this isn't so oh you would have to be a base a base individual to believe that but i i guess i was probably in that camp before things just got so out of whack all the time in the last five years, I feel like, but, um, yeah, you're right. I think it is, it does do more harm than good. Uh, I think the saving grace is that, um, 
there isn't as much snuffing out of free speech and journalism in the United States as elsewhere in the world. Yeah. No, I agree with that. There's always a good, every few years, there's a good, um, you know, like we talk about Spotlight, you know, that the movie Spotlight, where there are some journalists that really fight. It's a classic movie theme as a journalist that just won't get off the case and everybody's telling them to get off of it. You know, nobody trusts that they're going to figure it out and they trust in themselves. Great storyline. It's romantic. Mm -hmm. One person has the power to change the world, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but not you. Yeah, well, this one, this one person person did. So why don't you live vicariously through them? Yeah, let's let's watch a movie and then eat your M&Ms and go to bed. (laughs) Hit the nine to five the next day. (laughs) Hit the the highway. Throw on that radio, sports talk radio. Oh, yeah. Yep. Oh, man. I know. I don't know. Maybe maybe a new, I I don't know a new, a new, all this, all this people moving around, taking more agency in their life. I would like to think that, um, we're taking steps in the direction of, of rewriting some of these rules. And it's odd that we had to have, uh, something like the pandemic to push the American way of functioning so far in a direction, but it was very much a, one of those punctuated, change events that society will forever be you know pushed in a very significant direction because of it i understand it's a horrible loss of life event as well um but the uh the the punctuated kind of historical significance that it had in our lifetime and we're actually quite lucky to be one not at risk not at a a lot of risk for the disease because of our age and two at a career point where our um our skill set lends well to being able to function in this new environment you know we're not like we're comfortable with technology basically is what i'm trying to say so yep who knows maybe it was the millennial sect of the uh, cia and the chinese state police that decided to release this in terms of clearing off the the uh the expected incurred medical expenses for the next 10 years. I don't know. So, yeah. Who could say the, well, you know, there'll be some good book about it at some point. There'll be plenty of books about it, but we'll have to find the right one. There will. And there'll be plenty of podcasts of millennials thinking that the world needs to know their opinion on, on, on it. Like us here. Just about like us. Yep. <laughs> so, investing in crypto, pulling our money out. <laughs> Yeah, uh, it's yeah, that's that's shaken up. I've been very interested to see all the crypto um, supporters what their uh, their tune has changed a little bit. So that's been interesting to watch. Yeah, um, I will say this. So I got off the Instagram platform, but um, there was a time where I was fed an incredible amount of crypto advertising. Really tons tons of it and it was interesting because i noticed a huge surge of that advertising fairly close to just before the fall and so i have half a brain to 
Exactly. I have half a brain to think somebody who's not extraordinarily levered in crypto and is realizing that they want to get out of the game is launching a gigantic campaign to try and artificially prop the price up for a while so they can dump their shares and get out of the game. Like that wouldn't be all that challenging. No, not at all. And not I at think, all. I think there's tons of stuff that's like that out there in the marketplace. And honestly, I'm almost to the point of where like, if I'm getting an advertisement for something, I'm going to start doing the opposite. Yeah, that's probably and a good thing. Mm -hmm. Jim Cramer is another example of this in the stock world. Um, Jim Cramer is like that bald guy who goes on CNBC and makes a bunch of money and stuff. Yes. I think it's his show. Yep. And the Reddit, the Reddit, like super stonks, meme stock guys um, have this a bunch of memes about like anything that Jim Cramer says do the opposite because he's literally just a puppet for the established system and they're just trying to make money off of you. They're trying to feed you crumbs while like, you know, sort of taking you, walking you towards the slaughterhouse. It's like, um, and, it, and it's just, you know, another one of those kind of sad things that you see in the world, but, but it, it could be a great tool. So like if you're, if you're seeing a bunch of advertisements for a particular asset or whatever it is, you kind of know that it's like a pump and dump strategy really? here. Hmm. Yeah. That's really fascinating. I think too, there's like the whole Nancy Pelosi thing where people just trade on Nancy Pelosi's trades, even though it's like delayed mm -hmm. and they made like a crazy amount of money. Well, um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's, that's a totally valid trading strategy that, um, you should have, they should have like the Pelosi ETF basically, <laughs> like just yeah. following her trading. Yeah. You can invest, uh, well, and like that, I'm sure, you know, it's like, there are different ways to trade. And I do think what you're talking about is kind of this pump and dump the everyday investor. So guys like you and me are at a severe disadvantage, severe disadvantage, whether it's informational, whether it's, you know, a variety of factors. So everybody's got to keep their head on a swivel and, um, you know, just going in on Robinhood and buying Allbirds shoes stock didn't quite work out. So, you know, like that, that's an example of somebody has been taken to the cleaner. So Totally. And I recently sold a bunch of investments out of Robinhood and was so frustrated with the process because um, I sold a bunch of stock and it was not immediately released to me. Yeah, they have a really long period of releasing the funds. Yeah. What I think they like do is they hold on to the trade until it's a favorable time for them to make. I think they lock you in and then they wait and they place the trade at a time where they can make more on the spread. Really? That's what it would appear to me because like I've heard about some really shady Robin hood practices like they, cause they don't take a fee for transactions. So how do you think they make their money? Oh, they gotta figure out fancy ways. Mm -hmm. So they're a broker. So I think they just are assuming the risk for the trade and accounting for like, they put a limit order on it basically. And they say, 
you know, if the price goes up like 2% or down 2% or whatever, or they'll liquidate it at the appropriate time to, you know, maximize their, mm-hmm. their trade. And, um, there, I think there've been people who have been pointing this out as like a potentially fraudulent thing that a broker's doing. And, um, then Citadel, which is like one of the sec black targets organizations sort of, they like manage all of the, they're like the behind the scenes puppet masters of the of the sec and of the the treasury um and, but uh the, there was like some cover-up sort of campaign that happened because of this information once again being talked about and not being fully supported in terms of like um you know getting the the appropriate type of media coverage that you would think so th- this was a this was a this was a downer one today. We had a lot of depressing stuff to share with the, with the audience, um, but hopefully informative nonetheless. Um, but that's all we got for you today, folks. Tune in next week. We'll be back kicking it here in the Rumpus Room.